Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, you've probably heard that said before. It's a quote lifted straight out of our passage for today. It's a Bible verse. It's been bandied around to justify a whole bunch of things. For example, you may have heard it said that because we're not to be yoked with unbelievers, that means Christians can't marry non-Christians. Verse has also been used to say that Christians shouldn't go into business with non-Christians. Maybe it's the idea of uh, having a contract with an unbeliever, that that's what we're uh, we're not allowed to do. So does that mean if I run a business and I employ people, uh, I can only employ other Christians? Uh, What about taking a home loan from a non-Christian bank? Well, probably can't do that. Do I have to send my kids to a Christian school? Do I have to get a Christian plumber when I need a plumber? What does Paul mean when he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers? Well, we're up to 2 Corinthians 6 and 7 this morning. And this verse is actually a pretty important verse in understanding these chapters. But to get our heads around it, we're going to need to go back to the beginning of chapter 6 And we do want to get our heads around it, because whatever it is to be yoked with unbelievers, we don't want to do it. What we're going to discover is that it's a sin that drives a wedge right between God and his people. But we love God. We delight in him. We don't want to go down that path. So come with me back to verse 3 of chapter 6. Before Paul speaks of this yoking business, he first needed to remind the Corinthians of the sacrifices that he'd made for them, that Paul had bent over backwards to make sure that they heard the truth about Jesus. He didn't want there to be any stumbling blocks in anyone's road. Paul wanted to give the clearest access to Christ he could possibly give to people. Verse 3, chapter 6. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry would not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. And Paul goes on until the end of verse 10 the hardship and the distresses and the troubles that he went through to make sure there was no stumbling block, that his ministry would not be discredited. Paul did all he could to make sure that he personally gave people no reason to reject Christ. And this love and sacrifice of Paul was given to the Corinthians as well. What Paul had done for the other churches, he had done for them too. And Paul really wants the Corinthians to know this. So feel the emotion from verse 11. Verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Can you feel the emotion in those verses? Paul's reminding the Corinthians of his affection and his love for them. They're his spiritual children. He's opened wide his heart to them by sharing his life with them and sharing the gospel with them. And he wants them to open wide their hearts to him, to be in agreement with him, to continue to welcome Paul and his gospel. Because the Corinthians were in danger of turning their back on Paul's gospel and so turning their backs on Jesus. So how were the Corinthians to side with Paul? How could they 
open wide their hearts to him and his message by not being yoked together with unbelievers, which is what Paul appeals for them to do. Verse 13 again. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. There's Paul's appeal. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. But what does it mean? Well, the idea of being yoked here is the idea of working or partnering with the wrong people for the wrong cause. Well, the wrong people the Corinthians were partnering with were the unbelievers, that's pretty clear, but what was the wrong cause? What was so dangerous that the Corinthians had to pull out of altogether? Well, the issue was idolatry, the worship of idols. I'll read from verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As I read that, did you notice the polar opposites that Paul uses? Righteousness and wickedness, light and darkness, Christ and Belial or Satan, God and idols. And then Paul starts speaking about temples. In a few verses, Paul's going to use the religious ritual language of purification and contamination. What's on view here is who the Corinthians were worshipping. It was meant to be God, but they were falling for the complete opposite, idols. Now, idolatry was something that the Corinthian Christians had been involved in before they turned turned to Jesus. In the city of Corinth, there were sacrifices made to idols. There were meals uh, eaten in honour of idols. It all happened in temples made for idols. And sadly, at least some of the Corinthian Christians were now returning to the trough of idolatry. They were partnering with unbelievers in their idolatrous religious practices. And so Paul rebukes them by demanding that they not be yoked together with unbelievers in this. So being yoked with unbelievers is not talking about whether Christians can marry non-Christians or not. Though in 1 Corinthians 7 we're told that Christians shouldn't marry non-Christians. It's not about what business deals we can have or not. It's about not being allowed to partner unbelievers in idolatry. Because Christians belong to God. We're his temple. God dwells among us. He's our father. We're his children. Have a look halfway through verse 16. And why are we not to partner in idolatry? Verse 16, for or because we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so, of course, we're to have nothing to do with idols. The God of the universe has made us his sons and daughters. Through the death of his own dear son for our sins, God is now our father. He's our God. We're his people. He lives with us. He dwells among us. We're his temple. We are his home. 
If you were allowed to make up your own religion, you wouldn't come anywhere near as close to as good as this is. God is your papa. He's made you his very own child, brought you to himself, made you his treasured possession. Through Christ, you are God's beloved child. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises... Dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your, in your hearts. Now there we have again Paul's appeal to the Corinthians to open their hearts to him. But this time the way they're to do that is put in the positive. Back in chapter 6, it was in the negative, do not be yoked with unbelievers. It's what they're not to do. Now it's in the positive, what they are to do. And Did you see it there in verse 1? Purify yourself and perfect holiness. That's Paul's appeal to them to make room for, them, for him in their hearts. Now whether or not Paul thinks the Corinthians are actually going to pull this off, well, that's the rest of chapter 7, and we're going to get to it in a minute. But for now, this idea of perfecting holiness is worth teasing out a bit for ourselves because this is Paul's great concern in these chapters. Instead of dabbling in idolatry, we're to perfect holiness out of reverence for God. Now, the idea of holiness, it's just the idea of being separated out. It's being set apart for someone or something. You'll have to forgive me. I know I've shown you this before. It's my matchbox car. I've got a few. This one's pretty special. Uh, the, my matchbox cars, and this one in particular, so please don't come and touch it, but you can have a look. Um, they're holy. These, my matchbox cars, pick on this one, this, this matchbox car is holy to me. It's been, in other words, it's been set apart for me. Uh, in other words, the car belongs to me and it's for my use. This car's not yours, it's mine. It's holy to me. Well, we are holy to God. We belong to him and we're for his use. So when Paul says we're to perfect holiness, what he's saying is that we're to be having more and more and more of our lives given over to God for his use. Perfecting holiness is having more and more of your life set apart for God. It's scraping sinful habits and desires out of your heart and living for God in every sphere and every moment of life. And we do this out of reverence for him because he's our God. We're his people, his children, bought with the blood of his son. It's our delight and our honour to live for him in every way. Now this is a very different way of thinking to the rest of the world around us. The world out there is all about living and looking after yourself. Every decision is about what works best for you. People are applauded for looking after their own self-interest. The world hates the idea of someone else being in control of your life. We're meant to take control of our own lives. Be the captain of your own soul, the master of your own destiny. It's all about you, 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 and making the most you can out of life for yourself. Whereas Christians are trying to make the most out of life for God. We're holy. Wonderfully, we belong to God through the death of his son. And so we're perfecting holiness. We're working at being set apart for God in every way possible. 
Now in a moment we're going to think through how we can put this mindset into action. But for now, quick recap on the big picture so far. Paul's appealing to the Corinthians to open wide their hearts to him by not partnering with uh, unbelievers in idolatry and instead they're to purify themselves and perfect holiness. Now as we keep on reading in chapter 7, what we discover is that Paul's very confident that they will in fact do this. Paul's confident that the Corinthians will side with him and remain in Christ. And the reason Paul's confident is because this isn't the first time he's had to pull the Corinthians up for some sin. Paul's rebuked them in the past, and when the Corinthians then were faced with the choice of siding with Paul or not, they sided with Paul. Back then, they sided with Paul in such emphatic fashion that Paul's confident that they'll do it again this time around. Chapter 7, verse 4. Verse 4, I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Now, why is Paul confident? Verse 5, for when we came into Macedonia, see how he's recalling an event that happened in the past here. When we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but also by the comfort you had given him he told us about your longing for me your deep sorrow your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever see on this previous occasion when Paul had rebuked the Corinthians he'd he'd written them a severe letter calling on them to repent of their sin and Paul was worried how they'd handle the letter Would they hate Paul for it? Would they reject Christ over it? And so Paul sent Titus to them to see how they were going, and Titus brought good news. Instead of them hating Paul, they longed for him and were in deep sorrow over their sin. Verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. You see, back when Paul raised this previous sin with the Corinthians, it caused them sorrow, godly sorrow that led to repentance. Not worldly sorrow that feels sorry about the wrong thing, but in the end does nothing about it, but godly sorrow that results in a rejection of sin and an earnestness to do what is right. This is how the Corinthians reacted last time Paul rebuked them over a sin. And that's why Paul's confident that they'll turn away from their current sin of being yoked together with unbelievers in idolatry. Skip down to verse 15. Paul's speaking of Titus and Paul says in verse 15, And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you are all obedient. Receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. 
See, Paul's confidence in the Corinthians this time around is based on what they did last time when he confronted them with a sin. And so because the Corinthians have a track record of repentance, Paul has complete confidence that they'll get it right again, that they'll choose to live holy lives out of reverence for God. Now, do you know people like that? People who've got a track record of repentance. That whenever sin is exposed in their life, you know that they're going to try and eradicate it right away. Is that what people would say of you? Would the people you know of, sorry, would the people who know you speak of your track record of repentance? Or are you someone who tolerates sin? You just coast along with it. You've gotten tired of the struggle and right now you're in the giving in stage. It's just who you are. Or would those who know you have complete confidence in you to repent? That if your friends brought to your attention a sin that you were struggling with, would they be confident in you repenting of it? A good measure of where we're at with all this is to think through how you respond when someone rebukes you. What do you do at that point? Do your hackles go up, get defensive? Do you wallow in self-pity and so cripple yourself from even addressing the sin? If we're genuinely perfecting holiness, actively working at setting more and more of our lives apart for God, then we will actually want our sins pointed out to us because we want to repent of them. And it's hard to repent of something you're not aware of. So when a Christian brother or sister comes with a rebuke and they're right, then we should respond in humility and in sorrow. Sorrow that leads to repentance. We should be developing a track record of repentance because God's our Father. And we're his children. He lives with us. We belong to him. We delight in being set apart from him. And so we're perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That's what we're to be like. And so it's worth thinking about anything that might be working against you in this. Is there any sin that's hurting your efforts in being completely set apart for God? Is there anything that's robbing you of your delight in God? Perhaps it's laziness a lack of self-control, an unwillingness to be disciplined in your approach to sin. Have you ever had the thoughts, Jesus died for me, I'm forgiven, and I'm not going to be perfect before heaven anyway, and it's all just too hard. Instead, God calls on us to fight sin, to put it to death, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Perhaps our perfecting of holiness is taking a hit because we haven't steeled ourselves for it. For the Corinthians, it was the very specific sin of partnering with unbelievers in idolatry that was holding them back from being completely set apart for God. Maybe there's specific sins that you're dealing with, like sleeping with your partner that's not your husband or your wife, gossiping, stealing songs from your friends by uh, copying them, Maybe fits of rage, uncontrolled anger, filthy language, lying, 
Selfishness, you only ever talk about yourself, you never actually listen to anybody. Drunkenness. Envy, never content with what you have. Prayerlessness. Impatience. Ungratefulness to God. Is there any sin that's taking root in your life and robbing you of perfecting holiness out of reverence for God? Because at the price of the death of God's son, you are now God's child. He's your father. Where is people? He lives among us. And so out of reverence for him, we're perfecting holiness. We're developing a track record of repentance so that every area of our lives is set apart for God. That's how we want to live. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that through your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have made us, even your very sons and daughters, that you are our Heavenly Father, you are our God, we are your children, we are your people, we are your temple, your home. Father, it is very difficult for us to understand the rich privilege that it is to belong to you, to be owned by you, to be bought for you at the price of your Son. And so we pray that we would delight in you and that we would see sin for what it is. Heavenly Father, help us to scrape it away, to put it to death, and that instead, Father, to perfect holiness out of reverence for you, our loving Heavenly Father. Amen.